Father, we thank you for your word. It is a lamp to our feet. And uh, we ask that, that you would help it be that, that you would help it to guide our steps in this Christian life. And uh, give, us, give us your wisdom this morning. Give us your spirit to illuminate these things to us. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. We, uh, we love surprises. You probably, I say surprise, and you probably think to maybe a particular moment in your life when you were surprised by something. Maybe it was a surprise birthday party. Maybe it was a surprise uh, check that came in the mail. Um, but we, we love surprises. Many surprises are good. Not all are good. Some are fairly neutral, but they're still surprises. When I was in college, uh, I took a trip to China and Tibet to study abroad, and we were in the Forbidden City. It was a, several students from the college where I went in, in Oklahoma, Oklahoma Baptist, and we were there, and we heard a, a person in uh, the Forbidden City in Beijing, and they were speaking English, and we thought, well, I wonder where they're from. Let's go, let's go mingle with them, and so we asked where they were from. They said they're from America. And we said, well, us, us too, we're in America. We're from Oklahoma. Hey, so are we. We're in Oklahoma, Oklahoma City. That's where, many, that's where many of us are from. We're in Oklahoma City, Midwest City. There was a person in our group. What neighborhood in Midwest City? I, I, my family lives in Midwest City. This neighborhood, what street? They met their two, horse, two houses down neighbor in the Forbidden City in, across the world. You don't expect that to happen. That's a surprise, isn't it? Some surprises, though, not, they're not just neutral. Some surprises are bad. There's many stories of people take, get, uh, um, giving their DNA to one of these companies and finding out a surprise. It wasn't maybe what they expect or hoped, and it's kind of created some challenges in their lives. Well, at the heart of the Bible is a surprise. If, if, if we had to kind of summarize the scriptures, they reveal to us a great and wonderful surprise. Not a neutral surprise, not a bad surprise, but a wonderful surprise. And this passage this morning that we've just looked at takes us to the heart of the Bible and the surprise that the Bible reveals. So what's the surprise? I'm not going to tell yet. You're going to pay attention. We'll reveal the surprise as we move along. But I want us to kind of just quick review on where we are in all this, this story. So God creates a world, and people are the center of that creation to be God's stewards, his co-creators on earth, to extend his creation, to fill the earth and subdue it, to cultivate and extend the garden outward into the world. As God's stewards. Well, humanity rebelled against that. Ate the fruit. And Genesis chapters 4 through 11 give us kind of a wide angle view of the world. And how sin, people are doing what they were created to do. They're, they're, they're marrying. They're having children. They're building cities. They're developing the arts and culture. They're doing all of those things. But sin's tentacles are reaching into all of, those, all of those aspects. And so life is a real mess. And then in Genesis chapter 12, God zooms in on one family on planet Earth, the family of Abraham. 
And he makes these enormous promises to Abraham. In a span of three verses in Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3, you see the word bless and blessing and I will bless you show up more than it does in the first 11 chapters. God is up to something big in this family of Abraham. He's going to bring about, as things are revealed, a salvation to this people. And through this people, God will save all the world. That's the promise. But as you will remember, the family of Abraham, they weren't chosen because they were special. They're just as messy as the rest of us. Uh, Sin after sin plagues these families. But time and time again, God is faithful to his promises. Abraham gives birth to Isaac, miraculously. Isaac and Rebekah also struggle with infertility, and Isaac prays to the Lord, and God answers his prayer and and gives uh, Isaac and Rebekah twins, Jacob and Esau. And Jacob and Esau, from the time they were in the womb, have this strained relationship that marks their whole whole life. Uh, Jacob steals, deceptively takes the birthright from his brother Esau, in a very conniving and, and, and mean way. And where we last left Esau, Esau was comforting himself, thinking about how he might murder his brother Jacob for taking this birthright. That's where we last saw Esau. And so Jacob runs from uh, Esau, his brother, finds himself in the land of Laban, where he meets another schemer and plotter who makes his life miserable, his uncle Laban. Jacob has finally shedded Laban. They made a covenant. And Jacob said, I will not cross this line right here, and you won't cross it, and we're going to stay apart. And so Jacob, he's, he's pinned in by the covenant, and he turns around to carry on his journey, and guess who's right there around the corner? His brother Esau, who wants to murder him. He's pinned in. And remember, Jacob was afraid, he's vulnerable, he's weak. And what does he do? He does something for the first time. We've never seen him do it. He, he lifts a prayer up to the Lord. Pray, comes to the Lord in his weakness and lifts up a, a model prayer, the longest in Genesis. And then he's there in the night. His family has crossed the river. He's returned. He's alone. There's a fire. He's sitting by the fire. He feels the weight of the world. He's thinking his whole family's going to get slaughtered by his brother. He doesn't know how this is going to work out. And out of nowhere, out of the bushes, a body collides with his. He's probably thinking, this is, this is it. This is Esau. He found me, and he's about to kill me. But only it's not Esau. It's the Lord. It's the pre-incarnate Christ that has attacked him by night. And they're dueling it out, and nobody's quite gaining an advantage over the other. And then at the very end, when, at, just before the dawn, Jesus touches Uh, Jacob's hip and devastating blow. Jacob's flat on the ground. Can't do anything. His hip is out of joint. He's handicapped for the rest of his life at the touch of Christ. And he clings to Jesus, says, bless me, bless me. And Jesus blesses him and gives him a name change. Listen to what one commentator says. Remember the name, right? Jacob becomes Israel. The father of of the nation, right? One commentator says, that's how Israel comes on the horizon. Israel is not formed by success or shrewdness or land. 
but by an assault from God. Perhaps it is grace, but it's not the kind usually imagined. Jacob is not consulted about his new name and his new identity. It's given. It's it's imposed upon him. And when daylight comes, the stranger is gone, and so is Jacob. There remains only Israel, who who had not had a good sleep that night. And so Jacob emerges from the night with a limp. He emerges uh, being physically broken down, existentially broken down. He emerges not only not having any sleep, but exhausted from from an all-night wrestling match. And he turns and he hobbles his way toward Esau and his army of 400. And just looking at it, on the surface you think, this guy doesn't stand a chance. But here's the thing. In God's economy, Jacob hobbles along in greater strength than he's ever had. Because Jacob is leaning into God in a way that he's never done before. Jacob is fully dependent on God. And in God's economy, that means he's never been stronger. And that's the divine logic, right? When we're weak, we're strong. When we're weak, we're depending upon God. We're praying to God. We're leaning into God. And God supplies. So, that catches us up. So Jacob is just, he's just, new days dawned. He, he looks, and then look at verse 1. Jacob lifts up his eyes, and he looks, and behold, Esau was coming, and 400 with him. So he divided the children among, uh, uh, among Leah and Rachel and the two female servants, and he put the servants with their children in front, then Leah with her children, and then Rachel and Joseph last of all. Now note the order here. You see the order? Right? They're, they're confronting an army. So who are we going to put on the front lines? Jacob says, okay, you servants, you kids, get in front. And then uh, Leah, Rachel, okay, yeah, Leah, you and you boys, you, next. If, if somebody's going to die, it's going to be the servants first, then Leah, and then last of all, Rachel and Joseph, we're going to take special care of you. And you can imagine little Reuben, little Simeon, little Levi, little Judah, looking at this situation. They're, they're putting two and two together. They see what's going on. They know that they're thinking, Dad doesn't care about us. He just cares about this little brother, Joseph and, and, and Rachel. It's this ongoing favoritism. And here's the thing. It's not just impacting this family. It existed in the generation before, remember? Remember who, who uh, Isaac loved? Who did Isaac love? Esau. And mom, Mama Rebecca loved Jacob. And, and we, we, we noted, back then when we looked at that, that, that created a rift in the family. There was a division. Rebecca never referred to her, her husband, or her, uh, her husband, Isaac as her husband. It was like, your dad. That's how she referred to him in those late, later stages. And your brother, not my child, Esau, but your brother. Distance. That's what favoritism does. And here's the thing. It's going to move forward into this next generation going to wreak havoc. Joseph's going to receive a lot of hardship for it. And that's what sin does. And I want you to notice the generational nature of this. And I think what this, this highlights for us something really important. We need families. You need to deal with sin with your children. And I, I'm, I'm, I'm guessing that Jacob and, and Isaac and Rebecca, they never talked about these things. 
They just swept it under the rug. But all the kids saw it. It was clear as day to them. And here's the thing. If, if, if we don't pull these things out of the darkness as families and tell our kids, look, kids, I struggle with anger. I always have. And sometimes my anger spills over to you, and I get mad at you, and it's not deserved. And I, I need you to forgive me for that and help pray for me that I overcome this struggle. Or kids, I, I struggle with these screens and, and, and sexual temptation. And, and the reason I'm talking to you about this is because it's a struggle for me. And I've got, I've got, this, friend, I've got this friend of mine that, that helps kind of monitor what my activity online and helps keep me honest in this area. And so that's why I'm helping you by monitoring your, your devices that you're using. Taking, can you think of the power of... Here's the thing. You think about that, dads, and you're thinking, man, that's, that, that's weakness right there. I, I don't know if I could do that. Oh, that's strength. Think about the power of that for your child. I need Jesus. I need forgiveness. I need the community of faith to help me fight sin in my friend. See? It fe- the reason we don't talk about these sins with our family is because we feel like they'll think less of us. That's pride. Remember, this is what we say every, every time, all the time. It's about Jesus. It's not about us. We're pointing our kids to Jesus and to our need for him. Okay, so that's just kind of almost a side note to this whole thing. But it is important. The text is giving us subtle little clues and hints that there is a storm of brewing when it comes to the favoritism. And we'll get there eventually, but we're still a few chapters away. So, um, but Jacob still goes to the front lines of this encounter. And look at verse 3. He himself went on before them, bowing himself to the ground seven times until he came near to his brother. And this this act of bowing yourself, prostrating yourself um, seven times before before a Lord was, was, was kind of a common practice in this day and age. There's a bit of Egyptian literature that uh, describes a servant. Um, it says that a, the, the, the servant beneath the feet seven times, seven times I bow, a servant says to the Pharaoh. Right, so this is a common practice. And so Jacob, I want you to notice this. Jacob is approaching his brother in a distant, cold, aloof fashion. Remember, he sent wave after wave of gifts, 550 animals, which was lavish. He sent that to his brother. Let's try to warm him up. And then he, says, he tells him to say, call him, he calls him Lord multiple times. I seek your favor. And then he comes to him and he bows before him seven times in a very uh, you know, mechanical sort of way. It's cold. This isn't how brothers approach each other. Now, by contrast, let's look at how Esau greets Jacob. Look at verse 4. But Esau ran to meet him. So Jacob sees Esau, and Esau starts running towards him. He's thinking, okay, what, is, what does this mean? Is this like run of aggression? He's about to slaughter me? Or, or, or doesn't know what's going to happen. And then look what, look what happens. Surprise. Esau's warmth. Look at verse, eight, verse 4 again. Esau runs to meet him, he embraces him, he fell on his neck, and he kisses him, and they wept together. It's not a run of aggression, it's a run of of love, of grace to Jacob. He runs, he hugs, he kisses, they weep together. 
That's a surprise. What, what happened to Esau's anger? His, ah, he screamed mightily when he got the blessing stolen. He wanted to kill. What happened to that? Why the army? Why does he have 400 men with him? What, what's that all about? We don't know. Does it say? But isn't it beautiful to see the grace that Esau extends to his brother? And that's what Jake, Jacob is surprised by grace in this moment. And Esau sees the, Jacob's family, he sees the wives and the kids, and he introduces, um, Jacob introduces um, Esau to his nieces and nephews and sisters-in-laws and uh, the, whole, the whole family, you know, and there's a great, wonderful little greeting. And then Esau says, verse 8, what do you mean by all this company that I met, right? In other words, the wave after wave of gift, the gift drip that you gave me overnight, where it's like wave after wave of, of, of livestock. What, what's that all about, Esau says. And Jacob says, well, shoot straight. I'm just trying to find favor. <laughs> like, that was my attempt to get favor in your eyes because I know I've wronged you. And then look at, look at what Esau says. I have enough, brother. Keep what you have for yourself. And so following that, there's this very, Jacob very carefully and diplomatically, and, apply, and even a bit dishonestly, we'll say, uh, in applying all of Jacob's shrewdness, he detaches himself from Esau. Esau invites him to carry on. And what does Jacob say? Man, I slow you down. I'm a fan. You're, you're a military man. You're, you're an army guy. And you, we can't, my family man, I got all these little ones, flocks, livestock. We can't keep up with you guys. We just slow you down. So you go ahead and go. And so they, they part ways. But what I want us to focus on this morning is this verse 10. Look again at verse 10. I think this is the, the key to under... And by the way, this also gets us into the heart, the surprise of Scripture. This verse right here. Verse 10. Jacob said, No please, if I, regarding the gifts, if I found favor in your sight, accept my gifts from my hand. For I, this is it right here, for I have seen your face, which is like seeing the face of God, and you've accepted me. Jacob says that seeing the face of Esau is like seeing the face of God, and Jacob should know, because what did he see the night before? The face of God, right? That's what he says, I saw, see the face of God, I'm not died. So just, Jacob says that seeing the face of Esau is like seeing the face of God? Now, that's surprising. Remember Esau? Esau, who despised God's plan of salvation and traded it for a bowl of soup. Esau, who out in the field saw Canaanite women and said, I want you for my wife, and I want you for my wife, and I want you for my wife, and married all these Canaanite women. That Esau? Jacob, seeing the face of, of, of Esau, reminds him of seeing the face of God. Okay, again, this encounter gets us to the heart, mystery, and surprise of our faith. And the key is verse 10. Jacob is the man who saw the face of God and did not die. And now he's seeing the face of Esau. And it's reminding him of God. What's going on? This encounter right here in chapter 33 ties the two chapters together. 
These two chapters are are to be seen as intricately tied together. Remember, Remember how chapter 32 began? It seemed almost strange. But Jacob is moving along with his family, and what does he see? It says that he met. It was like the, the, the description was a military encounter. He met God's camp. And a better translation, this is 32 verse 1 if you want to look at it. A better, a better translation was Jacob met the army of God. And then what happens right after that? Jacob gets a report that he's about to meet Esau's army of 400, another army. Again, Jacob, the man of struggle and conflict, all he's meeting are like armies, 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 Laban's armies, God's armies, Esau's army is before him, okay? And then what happened? So, and then, and then what happened after he met God's army? Somebody from God's army, Christ, the Lord of, somebody from the Lord of the heavenly host comes out and attacks him by night. But guess what? He doesn't die. Not only does he not die, but he's blessed. And now he's confronted Esau's army. He's confronted Esau, and he doesn't die. He's spared. See, what's taking place on the vertical plane with the heavenly hosts and the mysterious uh, man of God and the uh, pre-incarnate Christ and the horizontal plane are paralleling one another. That's what's happening. Jacob sees Esau's army, he meets Esau's army, and surprise, he's spared. He doesn't die. Jacob's distress and fear that's described when he hears about Esau's army parallels our own fear when it comes to the prospect of meeting our God. I I believe that Jacob's distress and fear parallels the universally human fear of the prospect of meeting our Creator. We say this a lot, but remember Adam and Eve who enjoyed blissful uh, fellowship with their creator? And rem- remember what happened after they ate the fruit? What was their position or posture? Hiding in bushes. They couldn't come face to face with their creator. They were deflecting his questions. They, had, they weren't in relation, right relationship with him. And ever since, humanity has been in a position like that hiding in the bushes, greatly afraid and distressed, just like Jacob, as it related to his brother Esau. And for good reason. Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed back in chapter 32 for good reason, right? He wronged his brother. He took from his brother. And for good reason, humanity feels the same way, right? We've we've rebelled against God. We've taken what we shouldn't have. And you may think, well, now wait a sec. This idea that we have offended holy God and have transgressed his his law, his way, it just sounds kind of a bit outdated. It sounds a bit much. Um, You know, I don't don't believe that what God's law says is um, necessarily true. I kind of got my own moral code, and I'll I'll follow that. And I I do just fine with that. I like other people, all that. Francis Schaeffer said, you know, let's just say, if, if, you, if you drop God's law, let's just, let's, okay, you don't believe in God's law, that's fine. Let's say we put a recording device around your neck, and it picked up every time you made a moral claim or judgment, critique, praise, moral praise. I love it when people do this, or I can't believe she did that to him, or I, you know, whatever. All, your whole life, it's picking up all of these things. And at the end of your life, we measured your life as, as you lived it 
with your moral code as defined by you, you would fall miserably short of your moral code. Something's wrong with us, okay? Whether you believe what this book says about how you should live or not, it's, it's hard to deny. Something is wrong with us. And so humanity's collective response to that problem that we face, our own brokenness and moral bankruptcy, humanity's problem is, or solution to that problem before our creator is to sin, it's to do what Jacob did. Remember what he did for Esau? Wave after wave of gifts. Send wave after wave of gifts to holy God in an effort to appease him. Give, and and it, takes, it takes different versions. Like the religious version of this is if I give my uh, church, faithful church attendance to God or my Bible reading or my acts of justice in the community or my tithe, I can send those things and wave after wave and hopefully God will be pleased with those things. And there's a, there's a secular version of that too. Maybe using... Um, Seeking out our own personal fulfillment to validate our existence before God. That if I can just kind of follow my heart and do, live kind of the authentic life and be true to myself, God could be pleased with that kind of life. But whether it's the secular version or the religious version, it comes up short and we feel it. We feel it. I've heard Tim Keller, who's a pastor, longtime pastor, now semi-retired, and uh, he has talked about in his years of ministry, as people get older, they seem to get a little more restless when it comes to doing good works, when it comes to kind of reading the Bible and doing these things. It's as though there's this, we got the sense that just like Jacob, his encounter was coming coming closer to, to Esau, we feel as though we're getting closer to an encounter with our Creator. So uh, we better make sure that we've kind of taken care of business, kind of take, you know, we've got like our little financial portfolio, we also got to have our spiritual portfolio in good condition when we, go, when we get to the end. So here's the conundrum. Our hearts are made for something infinite. The, St. Augustine said the, the, the longings of the human heart are infinite, and they can't be, so therefore they can't land. The heart can't land on anything that's finite. And that's why Augustine said our hearts are restless until they find their rest in holy and infinite God. So we want that. We long for God. But here's the problem. Our own sin and rebellion and brokenness has alienated us from him. And in this regard, this is why we feel just like Jacob felt in his encounter with Esau. That's how we feel about meeting our creator. Distressed and afraid. And think about it. Every encounter in the scriptures, what's the response of humanity? They were greatly distressed and afraid. What did they do? What did Jacob do when he encountered Esau? He bowed down. He fell down on his face. Prostrated himself. What do do people do when they encounter an angel of the Lord in, in, in the scriptures? They fall down on their face. They're greatly afraid. They're greatly distressed. It's the same response. Listen to what Derek Kidner says. The pagan approaches his deity as Jacob now approached Esau. And as Jacob would soon discover, grace, not negotiation, is the only solvent of guilt. Did you hear that? 
grace, not negotiation, is the only solvent of guilt. This is the first time that we see Jacob leaning into grace. Helpless, desperate, unable to do anything, unable to manage the system through his own wit. He gets grace. And he's Israel now gets grace. New identity. And this is, this, is, this is what the people of Israel are built on, is the grace of God. It's the only solvent of guilt before God. It's grace. It's not gifts. And this is a total surprise. Total surprise. Nobody saw this coming. If you look the world over, if you go to Tibet, you'll see Buddhists making their way, making these religious pilgrimages, and they're working their hands through the prayer beads, and they're spinning these, we- these prayer wheels, and they're making their way up to the Potala Palace to find favor before the divine, before the gods. Across the world, there's pagans beating drums, dancing around bonfires, trying to please and satisfy the gods. The, 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 the business executive up in the executive suite, burning the midnight oil. He, he or she's not trying to make money at that point. They've got all the money they need. They're trying to validate their existence before their creator. Right? Universally human response to, 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 to find favor before God through the gifts that we give. And Jacob here sees the face of God in Esau because Esau extends grace. It's amazing grace. And Jacob is learning to see that grace is divine. This is how our creator Rates, relates to us. It's how he relates to, to his people through grace. And here's the thing all of this grace, how is it unlocked? What's the key that unlocks it? The work of Christ. Abraham looked forward to the day when the Lord would provide, and the Lord provided it. The work of Christ unlocked the grace of God. And when we started as a, as a church, um, Way back in 2019, we had little Bible studies together, and we talked about what we could expect, and people would say, well, what, what's kind of your vision or mission as a church? And we, I, I said it was real simple. Um, in fact, I'm, you're going to sound like a broken record. You may think I'm, you know, I'm a one-trick pony, I think is what I said. We're going to preach Christ. We're going to preach Christ and Christ crucified, and that's pretty much it. Gospel ministry, that's what we're going to do. And if you were at my ordination service, the Ricky Jones, the pastor in River Oaks, was giving me a charge. What did he say? His talk was, Jesus is the plan A, and there is no plan B. And his charge was, preach Christ and Christ crucified. That's it. Nothing more, nothing less. That's your charge. That's what, I've sought, that's what I'm seeking to do, and, and, and that's what I hope is happening. I hope every week we come here and we get gospel treatments, that our lives are kind of reordered around the reality of God's grace to us in Christ. And this is why, and we need to hear it over and over again, because it's so counter our instincts. Martin Luther was asked, why do you preach the gospel every Sunday? Remember what he said? We quote this a lot. Because we forget it every Monday, is what he said. My congregation forgets it every Monday. That's why I preach it every Sunday. And we forget it. We think that wave after wave of gifts to God will somehow appease God. But Christ loves sinners and relates to us by grace. We stand not on the gifts that we give God, but the gift that he has given us in Christ. That's what we stand on. His precious atoning blood. 
And when that starts to work its way into our minds, into our hearts, into our bones, into our hands, it changes our motivation for Christian living. It really changes everything. Grace does. And we see that here. Even here. Esau rejects. Okay, so let's think about this. Uh, Jacob sends these gifts in an effort to appease his brother Esau. Esau rejects the gifts. And what does he say? He says, I don't need them. And does Jacob say, all right, great. And he points to his servants. He says, we're out. We're going to take those things and head back. No, he doesn't. Look what he does. Look at verses uh, 9 and 11. But Esau said, I've, I've got enough, brother. Keep what you have for yourself. And Jacob said, no, please, if I found favor in your sight, accept my presence from my hand. I've seen your face. It's like seeing the face of God. You've accepted me. Accept my blessing that is brought to you because God has dealt graciously with me and because I, have, I now have enough. And so he urged him and he took it. All of these gifts that were given to Esau to appease him are now given to him not to appease Esau, but out of gratitude for how Esau had treated Jacob with grace. See that? It's now gratitude that's driving the giving of these gifts to, to his brother Esau. The, the hymn, Love Constraining to Obedience. Let's listen to what this line says. To see the law by Christ fulfilled, to hear his pardoning voice, changes a slave into child, and duty into choice. What Jacob gave out of duty, like this is a Hail Mary, I'm just going to throw it out there, these animals, and hope that it works. He now gives by choice, out of gratitude for for Esau's kindness to him. And that's the difference. We believe that amazing grace is the driver, the engine for our obedience. You could think of it like the oil, right? The oil that, you know, think about your car. If, if everything, the whole car, the, it has to have a good and healthy and clean oil in order to all work together. It gets all out of whack if it's not there. The grace of God in Christ, our justification in Christ, is the oil for the walk of sanctification. It keeps all the gears working. It keeps, it, it, keeps it, it keeps gratitude as the motivator and not appeasement of a holy God. And the order is so crucial. I mean, you, you could come here your whole life to this church and think, you know, check, I did it. I, I made it another week at church. Or check, I read my Bible today. And it just becomes toil. But it, it, our desire is for it to, to, to come, to spring forth from the grace of God. Imagine the emotional and psychological relief that Jacob felt after Esau. Is, you know, Jake, it says Jacob's crying, right? Esau's crying because he misses. Jacob's just like, I'm alive. You know, he's crying because he's been spared. That kind of, uh, that kind of shock is our daily experience in Christ. That's what we talk about, reminding ourselves of the gospel that, that Jesus accepts us as we are. That's a, that's a liberating thing. And this is how the gospel works on us. I mean, think about what, what is our problem? Our problem is our selfishness, the fundamental selfishness of the human heart. And it really has two offshoots, doesn't it? Fear, fear, Pride, 
These are kind of how selfishness manifests themselves. And the gospel uniquely works on both. The gospel works on pride. It says at the foot of the cross is, is level. There's no, we are all equally alienated from God. Charles Manson, the Dalai Lama, equally alienated from, from, from creator. There's no advantage to one person. And that, that breaks down pride. You're no better than the next person. But it also deals, it, so it eats away at pride, but it also eats away and chips away at the fear that resides in the human heart. In Christ, you're loved beyond what you could imagine. God has all of his power working in your corner for your good. He's taking care of you. He loves you. Eats away at the fear. What shall I fear if God is for me? Who can be against me? And over time, that message just kind of chips. It works on our hearts. It's like a little chisel chipping away at the cold, hard heart makes us alive. It renews us. So hopefully the nail has been driven. Let's try to clinch it with a story from the New Testament. Jesus gives a story in the New Testament that I think, I'd not seen this until, I'd not occurred to me until this moment, but striking parallels between this story and the story that Jesus tells. And the story that Jesus tells is the story of the prodigal son. And you know, Keller uh, has a wonderful book on this. But he, he talks about how if you imagine Christian theology is like an ocean, and this story right here is a, is a point where you can see particularly deep into that ocean. You can see way down. It's very insightful and illuminating. And it's the story of the prodigal son. But if you remember, the prodigal son, a younger brother, a younger brother uh, persuades a father to give the inheritance to him prematurely. That's what happens. And so he goes to a far, far land off, and he squanders his inheritance. He squanders his inheritance, and he's, he has nothing. He's living with these pigs, and he's thinking to himself, my father's servants were at least treated better than this, so maybe I could go back to my father and uh, be welcomed as a servant and work for him as a hired servant. And so he's walking the long journey back to his father, and he's rehearsing this speech, thinking about how he can kind of persuade his dad that he's wrong and sorry, and maybe he could get enough grace to get in as a servant. And remember what happens? Remember what the father does? As he's rehearsing the speech, the son, the father runs to him from afar, hugs him, they weep, he kisses him, and he welcomes him in. It's like the same story. Remember what Jesus says? That's your father. When a sinner turns and repents and comes home, no matter how grievous the sin, how offensive the sin to holy God, this is how your father welcomes him back. Just like Esau. Just like Esau. So how can God be so gracious and merciful to us? How can, how can the father treat us like that father in that story? Or like Esau? Because of the work of Christ, Jesus gave us the most vivid, high-def illustration of God's grace to sinners in his death, which atoned for our sins. So my question for you this morning is, do you see Jesus? Do you see his love for you? It's not always easy to see, um, but sometimes it shows up in unlikely places, like the face of Esau of all places. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your love to us. I hope that we have experienced um, 
the shock paddles of your grace that we have received a bit uh, of life this morning as we are reminded that you relate to us not by our works, but by your grace. Grace. There is no boast in us for that, and that's fine. Um, Our boast is in Christ. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.